This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Can you tell me about what it was like creating that piece? Because there's something about it that was so mystically, hauntingly beautiful. I just couldn't well, stop playing it. We had the idea to to record that one, and it was all for a suggestion. Well, why don't you play the bass part on the bass? Because he also plays the bass. And so, and so I thought, well, that'll be interesting. And so as I as I and I started fooling around with it in the studio long before we got into putting the entire album together. I'm mostly a jazz bass player, so I'm playing uh, pizzicato on the bass as a jazz bass player. And and the, the bass line is very much a walking bass line. The notes are on the chord and boom, 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 boom. And I found myself going, but da 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 dum boom. He was adding little jazzy elements. I thought, well, there goes me. I just can't help myself. But I realized, okay, well, so many people know this piece. And it's maybe, so maybe done, one or two you know. critics out there might think that it's musical sacrilege to alter anything of Bach. And I, I maybe have a tendency to agree with him, but I thought, whatever, I'll do it anyway. Um, so I so I did that with the bass part. I kept true to the line of the bass part, but I felt it was a really unique opportunity to take the inner parts, the brass parts, and add some more jazz type of notes into the harmony. So I, I used Bach's. I didn't alter his harmony too much. Kept it very true to the original piece, but... The piece has been done so much. You had to change it up. Uh, that I felt, I felt, you know what, maybe it's time for a 21st century remix of the wow. air on a G-string. Because everyone knows the piece, but to do it a little bit differently and offer it plays the cello part, the solo part beautifully. And, and I do keeps, it in the traditional Absolutely the traditional true to the, yeah. to the original intent of the music. But And to me, it's, it's not a matter of overdoing or trying to make it poppy or whatever. Um, I just felt that this is, and, and if Bach were alive today, he might sit there and smile and chuckle. I don't know. Um, we can only guess, but to me, I thought it was a, a great opportunity to to try and borrow parts and maybe a little bit of a time travel thing. I'm so excited for people to get this album, uh, Bach, Back to Bach, and I, I think it's coming in September. September sometime. 6th is the official release date. And you're going to have a mini launch party in Newfoundland yes, and, we are. Uh, at your home. And I, so I find this the coolest thing. So, Mike, you left Newfoundland for 30 years. Yes. You never, you, you're a Toronto girl. I was never, yeah, never, I was never, never at all. So not only did you fall in love with each other and fall in love with music all over again and, and really find your music again, which we're still going to talk about, but you fell in love with Newfoundland. If a few years ago, my future self would have come and said, okay, you're going to find the love of your life again, and you're going to get married, and you're going to move to Newfoundland. <laughs> I would have said, okay, you're completely out of your mind. Um, we actually went there for uh, a vacation because I'd always been curious, always wanted to see it. You know, I'd heard and then come from away happened, and, and, and I was very curious about seeing uh, Newfoundland. We went there for a vacation, and I, I had an idea of what it would be like, but... When I when I arrived there, it's it's you know it's a place of about two hundred and fifty thousand people, and the level of culture. Well, the city of St. John's is about city of oh yeah, city of St. John's. The level of culture, the food. Mm. I mean, culinary. It has some of the best restaurants in the world. Mm. You go from one music venue to the other across the street, and there's always first class live music, and the people are so warm and friendly. And ten minutes to the airport. Um, 10 minutes into town. And then we, you know, after a few days, I said, let's go see what a house <laughs> looks like here. Wow. 
And we saw this house as, I mean, I didn't even look at the house. I walked into the house, saw the big glass window overlooking the lake and walked straight to that <laughs> because I'd always fantasize about living on water, like looking at water. And I just walked straight there and I said, this, this is, this is it. <laughs> and then I saw the house and, and, you know, it had everything we needed. It has a recording studio. It had a, a media room that was uh, soundproof that we could use as a recording studio, which How is which great is our is life. That? I mean, that we yeah. oh. that's part of our life. Has an exercise room, a hot tub. Every I mean, you, you never it's, have to it's leave. Our, it's our oasis. <laughs> you never have to leave. <laughs> and and it really doesn't matter where we live because our life is either on the road or working from our home. So our home needs to be an oasis. So we decided on that vacation that this is where we're going to be, and we still come to Toronto very often. You know, I have. Um, I see my kids here and we come here for work and things, but I mean, it's, there's no reason why it's only a three hour flight. It's not a big deal. So, uh, so what, it's like the best of both worlds. That's your paradisiacal oasis. And then you've got Toronto for, for other gigs, but you're also gigging in, in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. And how does your family feel that they finally got you back after 30 years? <laughs> well, as long as my brother left there um, and uh, my brother Chuck is there. So he's happy to have me back. I think we, we get together once in a while. And everyone else in my family, my, my dad is buried there. And my the rest of my family are living in Ontario. Uh, so it's not so much of that, but I've got a lot of old friends that we we're able to reconnect with. And because uh, I've been back to Newfoundland to visit over the years and perform and, and whatnot. But it, for me, it's almost a, a matter of rediscovering place. I mean, I drive past where I went to school and I drive past where I, where I lived and all that kind of stuff. And it, it seems like a lifetime ago. But it's great to have the opportunity to discover Newfoundland and St. John's from this perspective. Yeah. You know, the physical and, beauty is, is yeah. breathtaking. I mean, we're, we're maybe 15 minutes from, from beaches and ocean and whales and icebergs. And I mean, it's, it's astounding. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. so much symmetry in your lives. You were very close to your dad. You were very close and a very devoted daughter to your mom. Yes. And both of them, sadly, they, they passed away. Uh, you, and I just want to go back to the late 1990s and the 2000s. You basically took 15 years away from music to raise your children. You have two beautiful children. Mike, you have two beautiful children and that you're both you're very close to. For those years, though, you were home rearing them. But I love the story about how when you would tour, your mom would take one child yes. and uh, and stay at home in Toronto and you would tour with the other child. What a marvelous experience that you gave to your kids. Yes, I absolutely. I have such great memories of that because my, my mother was basically interchangeable with me. She raised the she she would take care of, of the child that was home as well as I could. And, and she she was an incredible woman. I used to tour with her for most of, of my life, but I have such great memories of the kids. David backstage, you know, when I'm playing in, in Vienna or, or, or the Concertgebouw and he's in his little bow tie going, Babu, mommy, Babu. You know? He's going to love that you said that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, he doesn't and they speak got like a, that they got a little, he, you know, and, and there was one point I remember, I think it was in Graz in Austria where, where the conductor was so uh, excited by by meeting David that he gave him the baton and had him stand in front of the orchestra and every time David waved the baton around the orchestra would play so he had wow. the experience of actually conducting an orchestra at the age of maybe less than two I Isn't think he was less that than incredible, two eh? oh and so God. they had incredible experiences growing up having I mean I, I didn't do it as as much obviously I didn't tour with them 10 months of the year but I did take both of them on on a lot of concert tours 
What a and, gift. What a uh, gift. Unfortunately, then my mother was uh, diagnosed with leukemia and I, I stopped touring completely and took yes. care of her for yeah. five years and wanted her to be part of the kid's life. And we were just basically in and out of Princess Margaret. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I tried to come back to playing after that, but I didn't. I hadn't realized all the damage that the years and years of touring and the 16-hour recording sessions had done to my so- shoulder. So when I tried to come back, I was in so much pain. And when they did an MRI, they realized that almost every tendon was was severed. So they didn't even know how I was functioning. But I had to have complete reconstructive surgery at that time. Wow. So then. And you didn't know if you would ever play again. I, because didn't, it, I didn't know if I would ever play again. Uh, I, I think that Mike is definitely uh, partially responsible for your comeback. And I want to talk about the comeback, uh, beautiful concert you had at Mervish Productions as well. But he, I think he was responsible for you playing the cello again. But what exactly happened after the surgery? It was a couple of years after the surgery and, and all the doctors were saying, well, it looks like everything is in the right place. There's no reason why you should be in pain. But I was in excruciating pain. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand why. And when we reconnected, I still didn't know. And I remember telling Mike that not being able to make music, not being able to play, whether I'm performing or not performing, was like I couldn't breathe. Of course. The years of not being able to play, it's like a huge part of my soul, a huge part of my life was missing. And when we got together, I still, I was still in pain. I still didn't know if I would ever play. And it was just a few weeks into our being reunited that I suddenly one day said, you know what? I don't feel pain in my shoulder. I don't, I, I, I don't understand. Maybe it's just, it was a coincidence. It was the timing, but I just suddenly felt like the pain was gone. Maybe yeah. because I was now truly happy finding out what it's like to be truly happy. And, uh, mind body connection, pain. right? It's the mind body connection. You were and the finally pain happy. Was gone. And, th- and then it was a long journey too, because, you know, when I started playing, I had no calluses on my, mm left hand fingers and obviously the strength that you need to play is very different from from what you do in everyday life so I started playing two minutes and then worked my way to five minutes and then 10 minutes I had no idea how long it would take but I knew that I was coming back and uh, and it was actually only a few months where I said you know what I feel strong I feel good I understand now how to preserve my shoulder because I know how to do exercises to, to work the counter muscles I understand so much more about the human body now wow. having done all these physio exercises so it felt great. I said, you know what? I'm ready. I'm it's ready funny to because it, it didn't take long for the word to get out that she'd gotten back to the cello because in June of last year, 2018, um, she was asked, Peter Monk had passed away, and she was asked oh. to perform at Kerner Hall for the memorial service for him. I played the Colney Dre, and it was I just- Okay, I was going to actually also want to play that on this program because that made me weep. And I actually showed that to a few people because that was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's such a beautiful. Piece. Yeah, that was yeah. unbelievable. But in in the and I forget what it was that we were asked about you performing that piece. But we we had run into David Mervish at um, the opening party of one of the concerts. I think that it was I, one of the American shows, in Paris. American in Paris, yeah. yeah. And yeah. and she, <laughs> David and and Offer had both received their orders of Canada. Uh, in 1995, the same day. Same day. So they knew each other. And it's like, well, how you been? You know, it's only, <laughs> it's only been 30 odd years or something. Um, uh, in any event, so David asked what was going on. We kind of said, well, you know, she's getting back into playing. And he said, well, let me, let, come, let come to the, come to the office and we're going to talk about how we can, we can be instrumental them. in that. 
And and it was amazing because David and his team, um, Mark uh, Lavaway and and the rest of his team, we all sat around the the boardroom table. Kind of thought, and what's the best way to do this? Jammed our heads together, and we came up with an idea of doing a concert, and that sort of morphed into uh, doing the concert with an orchestra. So we we put together an orchestra of of some of Toronto's finest musicians, and and uh, one night leading up to the concert, um, off for a bolt upright in the middle of the night. With this idea, we should have a choir. That's how I have my best ideas in the, yeah, middle, of the, night. In the middle of the night, which is fantastic for me because I don't like to sleep. Um, and and uh, she had the idea that we have a choir. And I wanted a gospel choir. Gospel choir. So we we had um, we, we found some wonderful singers in town here, Sharon Riley and um, and uh, and her group of singers came and joined us on stage. So it was quite a spectacle. We had a whole bunch of people on stage, and offer was. With the first half of the concert, she revisited some of the classical repertoire of Vivaldi Concerto. And a, yeah, I wanted to do the traditional things that I was known for, some of the crossover things that I was known for, and then some completely brand new things, which, yeah. of course, I realized Mike could write the arrangements. So That's the best kind yeah. of concert because they're craving the old, but they want to hear the new. You're yeah. so smart. And you planned this comeback concert, and you became a very, Mike, you became a very big part of this. Well, that wasn't planned. It wasn't really planned. We thought, oh, well, we could do this one thing that we've been doing together. We're fooling around with this arrangement of summertime. Beautiful, heart-wrenching arrangement. Oh, it's gorgeous. I've heard it. It's gorgeous. I love it. So so we thought we will do that. And then we were doing some other stuff, and Offer wanted to do Penny Lane as part of the Beatles set. And I said, well, there's a trumpet part in that. I can write write myself. And, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. And... uh, and then there was some other pieces, and as I was arranging stuff, offer was like, you know, that would sound really good with some flugelhorn. Well, that would sound great. Great with. So it ended up I was on stage almost as much as she was in the second half of the concert, and I really loved every second of it, getting to play music mm-hmm. with the love of my life and being able to experience the wonderful exchange of energy that we had with the audience. And I have to say that's something we look forward to experiencing over and over again. We've got some concerts. We all have tears. Um, I'm just going to tell you, we're in the studio here. You can't see this, but we all kind of are a little misty right now because you can feel it. You can, it's, it's actually palpable and it's so encouraging and inspiring for people to know that this love exists and it's possible and dreams have no expiry date. It can happen even later in life, 35 years later. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah, it is, uh, it's an amazing thing to experience (laughs) And, and we're excited to continue doing it. We, you know, I think if I'd spent 200 hours in the studio in the course of a month with pretty much anybody I've known in my life, one of us would end up on the front page of the newspaper. <laughs> um, but Alfred and I, we've, we've, we finished the last, uh, the last day of recording. It was just uh, July 26th. I think basically did a high five, took a shot of screech and went out on the kayak. <laughs> And, and it was and it was a thoroughly enjoyable experience. It was a real growth experience for both of us. Yeah, we um, both did, went out of our comfort zone in, in so many different ways. Yeah, but it was, it was our way of dealing with any any obstacles. We kind of put our heads together. And, okay, well, how are we going to deal with this? Because we, it, when we're together, it's not about the ego of this is what I want or this is what I want. It's about the goal of what music, what what what's the outcome that we want to create, and both our egos just go aside for that it's not it's not important to us we always find a middle ground we always find a way to create the thing that we want that's 
How it's did very you, rare. How did you feel, Ofra, in that comeback performance on on the Mervish stage who you shared your Order of Canada with? How did you feel standing there on the stage performing again with like the love of your life? Well, at first, before I went on stage, I was petrified because <laughs> I knew that this was a very important moment. This was my chance to show that I'm back and I'm back better than ever, stronger, more mature. But when I finished... And there were two encores, and one of them was the Flight of the Bumblebee. I don't think I've ever played that (laughs) faster or better. And I got off after the second encore, and I said, let's do it again. I want to go right back and start all over from the beginning and do it again. It felt so good. Exhilarating. I felt felt the connection with the audience. I felt the... Them holding the breath, holding their breath in the right moments. I felt the the warmth and the support. It was it was great. No cell phones went off. It was perfect. Yeah, oh. it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> what was that celebration like after? I can only imagine you oh, must have had great. a fun and being celebration. on stage with Mike. Oh my God! Like knowing that he was there and and looking into his eyes and making music. It was well. Pure I'll, t- magic. I'll tell you how we party. We finished the concert. <laughs> we had a little reception after the concert, and we went straight back to our apartment here in Toronto. And packed all our stuff, got in the car, and drove across the island to or the country to Newfoundland. No that's way! So that's how we celebrate. Yeah, we, basically, <laughs> no we, way. we, went, we went straight from being on stage, and uh, and then piling our jamming our stuff into the into the car and and driving. This is uh, AM seven forty, FM ninety six point seven, and the show that we are listening to is Finding Your Bliss. And I just have to end with this question, which is. This has been blissful. I have found this to be blissful to be with both of you and to share in your bliss. And tell me about what it's been like to find your bliss again, musically, romantically, and in every way together. All I can think for where I am right now in my life is that everything that's happened to me in my life and how everything has unfolded has led to the moments that I'm experiencing now. And I I can feel nothing but gratitude for everything, good and bad, that's happened in my life that's led me to this moment. So, um, yeah, we both really feel that the universe had a plan for us, and now we're, you yeah, know, we're, we're on this path and we look at each other and plow forward. And we're both the best version of ourselves right now. I want to thank my wonderful guest, the beautiful and magnificently talented Offer Harnoy, and the very respected, award winning, funny, and talented <laughs> Mike Harriet. You make a gorgeous couple. And you really are both so inspiring. Your album is beautiful and uplifting. I'm so excited for our listeners to hear some of it and to and to buy the album and enjoy it. We've enjoyed so much having you on our program today. Thank you so much for being here. Their new album, again, is called Back to Bach. And uh, I want to say it's just been absolutely wonderful. I want to tell you about next week. We're going to have Elaine Overholt on the program, who Ofer knows. Yes, she's a lovely woman. And she's a wonderful person. And she will be uh, on the program with some other wonderful people as well. And uh, we're looking so forward to having you back again on Finding Your Bliss. You've been listening to Finding Your Bliss. This is Zoomer Radio AM 740 and FM 96.7. I was going to end with this wonderful quote. <laughs> I'm just looking for it. And here it is. As William Shakespeare said, if music be the food of love, play on. Looking forward to seeing you all next week. I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. 
In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Welcome back. You're listening to Zoomer Radio, Finding Your Bliss, AM 740, FM 96.7. I'm Judy Liebrach. I'm joined now in the studio by world-renowned cellist Ofra Harnoy, an award-winning and respected trumpet player and multi-instrumentalist Mike Harriet. They're here to talk about their music, their fairy tale romance, and their new album. Welcome. Thank you, Judy. Hi, Judy. It's great to see you. It's great to meet you for the you first too. time. Absolutely. And just wonderful. Of course, congratulations to both of you on your wedding and your marriage this past summer. What a whirlwind romance. We want to understand everything. When did this all begin? How did you meet? Uh, we met when we were 16 and 17. And it was one of those fairy tale love at first sight. First kiss together, <laughs> everything magic. We we wrote to each other. We were living in different cities at the time, but we had met briefly in Toronto and hit it off like a a wildfire. And yeah, we were we were writing back and forth. It was in the old days, olden days before like you real had love letters. No text, wow. no texting your emails back in the early eighties. Yeah. So it was writing letters by hand. Waiting for the waiting for the mail to show up, and yeah, and we actually had a plan for Mike to come and study music at U of T, and we had a whole. I mean, we just knew we were each other's soulmate. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately, we we ended up getting derailed at some point along the way, so we basically lost contact with each other for about thirty five years. Wow, yeah, and uh, we just managed to you know Facebook. So, hey, how you doing? Remember me? Thirty five years later. When we found out what had happened 35 years ago, we understood that what was there was was the real thing. Yeah. You said you had a lunch together that was life-altering and that the glass shattered. And once the glass shattered and you realized what had happened, we knew we needed to be together. So it was, yeah. uh, I mean, it wasn't it was like, when we discovered the story of what, of what, what had, had happened. happened. We, we both thought one thing had happened and something else had happened. So it was it was one of those things where it kind of gradually we realized... Oh my God! This is we're 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 where we were thirty five years ago. You're sixteen and seventeen again. That's yeah. unbelievable. And uh, and then wow. at, at that point, we're thinking. You know, for me, I was just thinking, I I can't go to the end of this life and have not pursued this thing that I have to do. So, and she felt the same way. Yeah, there there was no choice. We we had to be together. And and every day that we're together, it just gets stronger and stronger. The connection that we have. I was just in the green room with both of you, and I saw the way you sat closely together on the smallest chair there was, holding hands, the way you look at each other. I mean, it's it's an unmistakable chemistry, and it served you so well, not only romantically and making you so happy, but professionally as well in your career. So let's go all the way back. At age 15, Ofra, you were playing on world concert stages. You won um, five Juno Awards. 
and many other honors, which we're going to talk about as well. But 15 years old, can you take us back to that very beginning? You were, you came on the scene and it was a happening. You were just unbelievable from the very beginning as a very young girl. Well, actually, it was at 10 that I realized that I'm kind of destined for the solo life because I, I went to audition for, uh, at that time, it was Dr. Boyd Neal was a conductor here, and I wanted to audition for his orchestra. And when he heard me, he said, you're not orchestral player material. I'm hiring you for two nights as a soloist. And I was 10 at that time. Wow. So that was really my first debut as a as a as a soloist and uh it's when the recording started coming out at age 14 and 15 and then my Carnegie Hall debut and that kind of led to one thing and then another and and recording contracts and then RCA kind of did the whole international uh exposure thing so yeah it kind of snowballed and I was touring 10 months out of 12 for most of that time well into until I had my my two children did you ever have like a normal school sort of uh, oh, no. background? You, so, <laughs> how lucky. That's so fun. What was oh, that I like? I never learned how to ride a bicycle either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, my it's, goodness. It's funny. I do a lot of things now as an adult that I never was able to do as a child. So, no, I had a very strange education because I went, I went to university for music when I was 11 and 12 and then kind of went back to do normal school at an alternative independent study program to finish high school. So it was, everything was a little bit backwards while I was already heavily touring. That's unbelievable. So, yeah, it was, That's but unbe- it's, it's, it was a fascinating way to grow up because I was seeing the, the most incredible places and learning everything. I, I think I learned more about history, art, culture from the traveling than I could ever learn from books. Absolutely. So. And you would spend 16 hours, I read, in the recording studio at a time without, without even thinking about it. That's probably how I destroyed my shoulder, but yes, <laughs> yes, I I could keep going and keep going, and uh, you know, it it was years and years of that, and I mean, now I know how to be a lot more careful with how I I take care of myself, but at that time, it was just it was all about just the music and and keep going until it's done. And at the same time, Mike, you were growing up, you were a very talented, always trumpeteer. And multi-instrumentalist, can you tell us what you were doing at 15 and what your childhood musically was like? Actually, my parole officers told me I shouldn't tell you what I was doing at 15. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I, uh, I, yeah, I was very active. I mean, I, I started playing the trumpet when I was six years old and basically knew that that's what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. I knew that I wanted to play the trumpet. It was always the voice that I had in my head, musical voice anyway. In my in my studies, I was being encouraged to learn orchestral repertoire, which I really had very little interest in in doing. And you know, I, I spent some time uh, with a Navy band out in British Columbia. And in the time that I spent there, I was the demands on me were both in the classical and in the jazz world. Um, and so I spent I spent those years kind of um, honing. A great range of skills that have that have uh, helped me uh, since then with playing a lot of the shows for Mervish and touring with various different productions and recording for various different types of musical albums from country and western to pop to you know rock and roll and and um, and classical and and whatnot. So, to if I had had a plan to do all those things when I was a kid, I wouldn't have been able to imagine how it would unfold. Um, sitting here now in my 50s, I kind of look back and scratch my head and think, <laughs> well, it's been a lot of fun. 
Um, the irony is that all these things that I've, all these skills that I've managed to put together and things that I've done throughout my career uh, and various different aspects of the business and production and recordings and whatnot have, have led me perfectly to where Offer and I are right now in producing the recordings that we are doing for Analecta. And to me, I find that to be a, an amazing way of seeing the universe unfold. Yeah, I, I really believe it's meant to be because every crazy idea that I have, it's like, oh, yes, Mike, yeah, he can write the arrangement. He can do this. We can do this. I can do this. And it's it's, an, it's amazing. We're, we're, we're a team. I mean, we're, we, we can basically do anything together. Well, it's like you wrote somewhere and I read in an interview that you breathe the same breath. You, you're like almost one musician. You're almost one person. Like you're so in sync together. Well, that was something we discovered after we got together because we knew that love wise we we were the right we were we made the full circle I don't know if it's in Kabbalah or whatever where they say the two halves of, of of the circle but we we knew we were that and then a few weeks into our uh being together we tried to play together and that was a whole different thing because making music is a very personal thing how you breathe how you think and you know it it was <laughs> I, I have shivers now thinking about it because when we started to play together, it's like you think and feel music exactly the way I do. I mean, how often does that happen? It, it's so meant to be. And you've actually put together an unbelievable album that's coming very soon called Back to Bach. And I'd love to hear how that all happened. And I just saw the album cover and I hope we can play it on the Zoomer website so, so that people can see it. It's, it's just so arresting and beautiful. How did it all come together? It's kind of hard to to look back and figure out exactly how the thing unfolded, but we we um, took up a relationship with Analecta Re- Records in Montreal, and so we agreed with them that the first album we would do would be a Baroque music album. Um, so we started looking through repertoire, and Offer had said, "Well, I, I really loved recording this one Corelli sonata, and when I, when I, we did it years ago, it was cello and, and organ." And I thought, well, I can I can create the sound of an organ, or not the sound of an organ, but create the function of an organ with all these brass instruments by by playing all the different parts. And all you have to do is arrange it and figure out who's going to play what. And uh, and so when we started doing that, and then we had the idea there was there was some two as a sonata for two cellos. I said, why don't I play both parts? Oh, love that because I played it with other people, and you know they always have their interpretation. I have my interpretation, but this way I could kind of. Off my own interpretation. It was it was, <sighs> was eye opening. I mean, to to be able to to do that. I, I think I saw a clip of part of that, and it was yes. just absolutely beautiful. It's Ofra playing back to Ofra, but in a different interpretation. It was so incredible. Well, we we engaged some video magic in that little clip. <laughs> uh, we had a dear friend of ours, uh, Lisa Sells, who's in St. John's, and she was the stand-in. So she they, she was they, my body double. They kept, they kept trading shirts. We, we kept changing our shirts, and, and we had and, we had both of Ofra's cellos out. So you'd have part of one cello in the hair and the shoulder, and one shot, and an Ofra in the in the shot. And so yeah, that was a lot of fun. movie magic we, we made that happen it was a lot of fun and I, my favorite part of that video is is where the offer in the pink shirt is giving the one in the green shirt some attitude <laughs> while she's answering <laughs> answering the questions in the in the pseudo interview but um yeah and for me i was i was amazed to see how offer can play both because it the the sonata the telemann sonata is a canonic sonata so it means that the first cello plays a part and plays the whole page, and the second cello plays the exact same page, but comes in one bar later. And so Alfred played both parts, and I was amazed to to hear 
how both parts are definitely distinctly Alfa Harnoy, but they're also two different personalities experiencing the music from a different perspective. And for me, sitting in the studio, because you have to record one track and then you have to record the other track. And I was amazed with how it, how it came together so beautifully. And then we also had the idea with uh, one, of the, one of the other sonatas that we would do I was gonna. We were gonna do it with harpsichord, and the harpsichord we oh, rented. Oh yes, was we, a, we we got a harpsichord delivered to our house because <laughs> I thought this Corelli Sonata would sound really nice with a harpsichord, and the harpsichord was terrible. I don't know if it was the actual harpsichord, but we <laughs> sat there and we. It was in bad shape. I used to I used to build these instruments with my dad when I was a kid, amongst this, the, this the, one many, was the many experiences that I had growing up wow. as the son of John Harriet. And so the we rented the harpsichord, and it showed up at the house. And I immediately realized that there was a few strings that were missing and some stuff that needed some attention. So I had a box of tools and whatnot that had, and extra strings that had come so with the harps. So I'm sitting there fiddling with it. <laughs> reminded, reminded myself of, of my dear old man. Yeah, you um, said some uh, words that shall not be repeated. I realized why he used to swear so much when he was working on the harpsichords. And uh, anyway, so I managed to get it into some sort of functional sounding yeah, I order. It. But I, and then I played it a little bit for offering. She's like, that sounds horrible. And, <laughs> and so, we, okay, we need to regroup. And we had six days left in our, in our recording schedule. And then um, I said, why don't you write out the accompaniment? Because I, I just had this new amazing experience of playing multi-track with cellos. Because I also did the, the Allegri, the Miserere, which mm-hmm. is nine cellos. And, and layering them one on top of another with the different voices. And it sounds like better than my what I imagined. I mean, it's it's really beautiful. And I said, okay, why don't you, because I already know he can basically do anything. He can write anything. <laughs> I said, why don't you write out a cello accompaniment? But what I didn't realize is there's going to be five cellos for each of the four movements that I had to learn and prepare in two days. Oh my gosh. So I did it. And, and the really challenging part, which was a lot of fun too, is that those five cellos, one had to sound like, it was almost like a string quartet or a string quintet. One had to sound like a violin and one had to sound like a viola and one had to sound like, the, you know, a second violin. And to create these sounds and have that layered underneath, kind of holding up the solo cello part. And, and the result gorgeous. was fantastic. There's definitely the solo cello voice and then the rest of the group sort of surrounds that voice. And uh, and you hear the personality of the violin and the bass and the viola as Offer played each part. And and uh, for me, I'm sitting there listening to each part being recorded, and we're talking about what needs to be, we can fix this, we need blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until we actually got the thing mixed together that I realized her level of brilliance and being able to hear the entire picture in her mind and how it sounds so organic, like five people looking at each other in a room following the soloist. Because as, as a soloist, we try to communicate with our accompanist, and, and the accompanist um, does their best job at trying to read our minds. Yeah. So you have the unique opportunity of being able to realize the whole piece <laughs> yourself. And, and As you envision it. As, as you envision it. it. And, um, and so seeing that unfold for me was brilliant. <sighs> Unbelievable! It's just I'm I'm so excited to to listen to that one. There's a track on your album that was absolutely mesmerizing to me, and it's of you all for playing the cello and Mike accompanying you on the double bass. It's called Air, or also known as Air on a G string, uh, Concertante Number no. Three by Johann Sebastian Bach. It's just 
hauntingly beautiful. I want to hear what you thought about it as well. And I'd love to play it now for our listeners. is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. everyone and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, a show that helps you find and follow your bliss. Coming up in this hour, we have a world-renowned cellist, Ofra Harnoy, and her husband, award-winning trumpet player, Mike Harriet. And joining me right now is former weekend weather anchor and news reporter at CTV Television, where she spent the last 20 years, which in this business is a tremendously long time. I also know Dana Levinson because years ago when I wrote a book called Love Mummy, Writing Love Letters to Your Baby, she wrote me the most beautiful testimonial that I still remember fondly and treasure today. Wow. She joins us in the studio. Dana, we're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's lovely. You had a very auspicious start, Dana, in television as an intern at CBS Mm -hmm. in New York City. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners how that all came about and what it was like? Well, it was the end of a very long educational career. I had been in university for quite a while. I had two degrees at that point, and I knew that I wanted to go to New York. 
but I didn't know how I was actually going to get to New York, right? It was always the goal was to go to New York and work in New York. But I realized that you have to start somewhere. So I picked up the phone and I called CBS and I called them and I asked them, how does one get into your newsroom? Because I knew I wanted to pursue news. And the woman on the other end started asking me a bunch of questions. And it turned out that interning was really the route to go at that stage because I wasn't going to get hired as a Canadian right out of school into the national newsroom at CBS without any formal training or work. So I went through the interview process with them over the phone and I became an intern. And I moved to New York for a summer for four months and worked and really worked that summer and really got a taste of what news was like. And it was pretty awesome. Pretty as a, awesome. As a former copy clerk at, at CBC mm-hmm. many years ago, right. I kind of know what that must have looked like. What yeah. were some of the things you were doing? I worked actually in business news, which is with a man by the name of Ray Brady. He was the business correspondent at the time, and I had absolutely zero interest in business news. I wanted to do international, I wanted to be at the international desk or I wanted to be at the medical desk. I want, that's where I had my heart set. And of course, because I said that, they put me on something completely different because as an intern, the philosophy 25 years ago was you had to learn something, right? You had, you're bringing something, but they had, they had to give you something too. And it, it was that real give and take. And so they put me on the business desk. So I started learning about business news, how to go about news gathering and and information processing in business, which was mind boggling to me. So my head was spinning every day at the end of the day. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, I'm a young intern in New York City, not being paid, living in Manhattan in an apartment the size of this room, if you can imagine (laughs) how small this room is, with my oldest, closest girlfriend, yeah, she was there at university and she was still there working and... I moved in with her. It was a dream come true. And so we just, you know, I pounded the pavement while I was there and worked really, really, really hard for four months. But I knew at the end of that internship that I wasn't going to be staying in New York. I knew that the reality was I had to come back to Toronto with the goal to get back to New York properly. When I say properly, I was going to come back with a job, with real money, getting paid properly and living properly, not sleeping in my girlfriend's bed, <laughs> or not my girlfriend, my best friend's bed, right? Um, and not having any money. And I just didn't want to do that as a professional. And 20 odd years later, here I am. I'm still in Toronto because I love Toronto. That's incredible. What mm-hmm. an incredible, th- this is the stuff that novels are made of. Right, like exactly. Just, just start, like, right? You know what it was like to, you know, to, be, a, to be young out of school and to work with Dan Rather, Oh. was absolutely oh. insanity at the time. That's, see your face? That, like that smile? That's what I was like every morning when I woke up. I remember getting up and I would get a bagel and a coffee in oh Manhattan, jump on the subway up to 57th Street. And it was just... That's yeah, the it was, coolest. It was That's the, like coolest. the coolest. So you come back to Toronto mm-hmm. and most people, even at that stage of their careers, are working as pink collar workers or interns, yeah. even in a place like Toronto. Oh, for sure. And you land a job mm-hmm. at Canada's, you know, biggest, best network, uh, CTV. Not right away. How did it all evolve? Yeah, not right away. No, I was doing a lot of interning. After I came back from CBS, I was not employed. And it was really, it was ebbs and flows. A lot of interning, a lot of waitressing, trying to make money, trying to get into the industry, taking jobs wherever I could, freelancing, um, doing writing, segment producing for various shows. But I had my heart set on news. And I 
got a phone call from a friend who was working there at Dr. On Call, who was then producing at the Weather Network, said that they were looking for producers and I needed a job. So I went in for a producer job. Uh, and at the time, the, the person who was interviewing me said, what is it that you really want to do? Because he could tell I didn't want to be a producer. <laughs> Not that there was anything wrong with that, but my heart was set on really getting on television, reporting, and being on news. And I told him what I wanted. And he said, would you like to come back and audition for an on-air position? Oh, and my I goodness. Because he saw you. He saw the blonde hair. He said, this is, <laughs> she's a host. <laughs> yeah, well, I went back a week later. I auditioned and got the job. And I started at the Weather Network. I was there for just a year. And then the call came in from CTV, which was then called CFTO News, CTV Toronto Local sure. News. And that call came in. And when that call came in, that was the game changer. And my life changed. And what was the trajectory like even at the Weather Channel? Like that must have been a lot of learning for you to do. It was because it was every shift was live. So it was four hour live shifts and you're on television for close to four hours live. And they were three to six minute increments. Some were as short as 45 seconds, but you learn to be precise and very accurate and very good in a very short period of time. Did you love the movie with Nicole Kidman who played <laughs> the weather girl? Of course. You got Tally. to say weather girl, the weather no. anchor, the That's weather right. person. Tally Atwater. Tally Atwater. Yep. Yeah, that was of, you, right? Yeah, <laughs> a couple of my friends used to call me Tally. I loved it. Yeah. So CTV, what a lot of people don't realize about you is they think that you were just were the, the weekend weather anchor. But no, in fact, yeah, you no. were a reporter for mm -hmm. many, many years. And yeah. that was really your dream. Mm -hmm. Can you take us just what a typical day was like and maybe what a fabulous moment for you was a highlight during that period. So for the first 10 years, so I was there for 20 years. So for the first decade, it was news, all news, all the time. And I was there filling in every hat. So I was anchoring, doing local news, general assignment news, also filling in for the weather. The only thing I, I love saying this, the only thing I didn't do was sports. I just couldn't, they just never <laughs> threw me into sports. I would do sports stories that were news related. Right. right? When, when I always say when sports becomes news, I would do that story, but I wouldn't do sports reporting. And so for the first 10 years, I did that. And it was it was absolutely incredible. And then my second decade started and I was asked several times to take on the weather anchor position on the weekend. And I was very hesitant uh, for good reason. I didn't want for many reasons, I didn't want to do that only. But the, sh the shift work for what it was at the time was not marrying with my schedule as a, then becoming a single mom. I had very young children. I had babies, in fact. Wow. And I needed to have a set schedule. And it was a great gig. And I loved it. It was live TV. And I love working with the people I work with on the weekend. They're my family. And uh, I... That's what kept me going the second decade of work, yeah. Can you paint a picture of what a mm -hmm. typical day in the life was, as, like what time you got up and what that whole day looked like? As a reporter? A as a weekend anchor. As a weekend anchor, different. So the weekend anchor was, well, I was up at the crack of dawn with my children, uh, and it was go, go, go all day. And then I would leave my kids around 3 p.m., and I would head into work. I'd be in the makeup chair before 4 o'clock. Oh makeup and hair by four. Um, and then there would be either a live or a live to tape segment with news channel, a weather hit, we called it. And then usually about an hour, I'd have about an hour at the most from five to six. It was like wildfire. We had to go really, really quickly, gather everything 
for the weather and get it all prepared for the six o'clock news. So everything had to be written, produced, um, and I had to get it right. I couldn't, I couldn't make it up. And then, of course, then there's the element of performing. You have to right. look good and you have and to, you have to look perform, good. right? And, you have to and perform. so, right. So then there was that. So for six to seven, we had our live show, our live newscast. And then typically around seven o'clock, we'd come off the show, we'd debrief a little bit, have a little bit of a break, and then we would get back into our news groove about an hour, hour and a half later, depending on what was happening. And we would start producing the 1130 show. And that was live for 1130 p.m. Wow. So that's a long day. Yeah. And I come off the air at midnight and then I would be probably go to bed around two o'clock in the morning and then I'd be up with the kids by 6.37. Go, 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 go. Do it all again Sunday and then Monday up again at the crack of dawn. But then I had to be at work on Monday for reporting by about 9.30, but I would, which, which was yeah. like a gift. It probably felt like a weekend, like a holiday all of a sudden. Yeah, because right? I'd be home by dinner time. Right. 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 As opposed to staying at work till midnight. What yeah. it, what drove you so relentlessly? What allowed you to be able to do that? At, like on four hours sleep a night sometimes? A lot of coffee. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> too much coffee for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't lie about it. People always say, what, how did you do that? I said, a lot of caffeine. Um, what drove me? I, you know, I love, I love TV. I love, I have this um, unbelievable, I always say I have this romantic relationship with the camera. Like I'm just in love <laughs> with it. And I loved my job. I loved the people I worked with. I never felt a need to go anywhere but CTV. I loved the people and I loved the work. And so it was the combination of being in the studio on the weekend and reporting during the week that gave me that element of I'm not getting bored doing one thing or the other, I'm able to do a lot of things. So I stayed and I loved it. And but for, I got, a, for 20 years, which is a mm-hmm. very, very long time. Long time in this industry. In yeah. this industry mm-hmm. Was there a report that really stands out for you as a highlight where you still get sort of the shivers, an epiphany, a great moment that you always think about? I'm sure there were many. Oh, there were many, yeah. But is there one that stands out? Well, uh, for sure when SARS hit, that was a that was a big deal for for myself and for a lot of people a long time ago. Uh, but that was a big deal. I remember it was a very, there were moments during those couple of weeks when SARS broke that I actually felt that things could change for me. I felt that from a health perspective, I felt sometimes unsafe and not because of anything that we were doing just felt like the world had gone bananas. Mm-hmm. So that was that really stood out for me that time in my in my career. And then there was some of you know some of course some of the famous people that I interviewed when I like well Sarah Jessica Parker was a huge I know look at your face see oh right? my gosh. I know and she's exactly what you think she is oh so cool she's Did so you talk about cool shoes? We, of course we talked about it. I was interviewing her because of her shoe line oh. she was at Browns in Yorkdale. Uh, for her Sarah Jessica Parker, her SJP line. Of course, I had to buy a pair of sparkly <laughs> shoes because I love everything that sparkles. And oh. I saw sparkly Sarah Jessica Parker <laughs> shoes. I said, I have to have those. I really need them. Um, and that was a huge highlight. I loved interviewing her. I didn't meet Madonna, but I was with Madonna. I know she's on my bucket list. We didn't get to actually converse because it was only allowed one person from each network. 
was allowed to interview her. So even though there were people from each news division there, only one person from Bell or from CTV was allowed to interview her. And I didn't get the interview, but I got to see her. I was this close, like the way we were sitting. Oh my God. That was huge. Was that the coolest? It was beyond. I can't, I said, I'm done. Like, I don't need to work anymore. I just need, I just, I don't know if you know what my nickname is. Miss Medina. Medina, that's mm-hmm. right, Medina. Mm-hmm. So incredible. Yeah. So during the winter months, which I find to be increasingly cold, I yes. will tell you, yes. I always look forward to two things, a warm fire in the fireplace mm-hmm. and your private weather videos that you oh, do on nice your you. Instagram. Mm-hmm. That actually was a very authentic uh, moment for me the first time I did that. And, I, and something stuck when I posted that for the first time and the response that I received, I thought, wow, people really like this. I'm going to do this more often. And people wanted to know more, you know, of me, but I wanted to be my authentic self and doing something real. And I also wanted it to be relating to the weather. So I brought that, I brought it all together. All together, yeah. it was integrated. Yeah. There was something I can't even describe to you. And I, I know I'm speaking for everyone when I say this, that first thing in the morning, I'd be like, okay, steal yourself. What's it going to be like? <laughs> Let's watch Dana's Instagram yeah. post. And there's something about the way you did it that would make you, okay, this is what it's going to be, but she's being very cheerful and positive. It's going to be better tomorrow. Okay, we can deal with it. And it was one, honestly, like a highlight. Oh, that's so nice life. I don't know, but it became a highlight of the day. So I haven't I, done, I haven't done, <laughs> I haven't done that in, since I left CTV in June. I haven't done a weather report from, but I've walked. I've walked certainly and, and, every and posted day. that. Yeah, I walk every day, yeah. And that is another thing that I find mm-hmm. incredible. So you're mm-hmm. walking a minimum of an hour a day. Sometimes. Sometimes it's only 20, 30 minutes. It depends where I'm going. It depends if I'm walking with a purpose or I'm just walking as a morning meditation. It just depends what it is. So wonderful. So Dana, after 20 years at your dream job at CTV, early this summer, you made a decision to I leave. Did, yeah. And what ultimately made you decide to leave? to leave the network. Yeah, hold on. I'm just going to pause that. Sorry about that. I paused. I paused. <laughs> uh, you know, it, I, I really was dealing with this decision for a while. It wasn't new for me. It's, it was, of course, new for viewers. But for me, the only way I can explain it rationally to people is that I just felt that there were two things. One, I felt that I had hit my ceiling professionally at CTV. And the other, I felt, and this was very real for me, is that people were not experiencing me the way I want to be experienced. And I thought, I have to change this. And I really was stuck on how I was going to change this. And I was really dealing with that for a very long period of time because I loved what I did there. I loved my CTV family. And I didn't want to leave. Agonizing. It sounds Agonizing. like it must have been beyond agon. It was. Was there a moment, as they say, where you woke up and it all was clear? Like often, you know, this is advice we give our children yeah. that you'll wake up in the morning, it'll all be clear what you have to do. Was it something like that? It felt like, you know, when you hear many different uh, mantras, expressions, and people say to you, you'll know when you know, and you'll hit your wall, or you'll just have an epiphany. And it really was a moment for me. I woke up one morning and I said to my husband, I... I need to do this and I need to do it now. And he said, okay. Let's. He supported you. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, he was like, let's do this. Like, you're us. the best couple, by the way. Thank I you. love seeing your pics. You're, you're such you. a gorgeous couple. Thank you so much. As yeah. you know, Dana, this program's all about finding your bliss. And you really are a role model for many people because you've done work that you have loved in a field that you love. And we're all wondering what is next for you now? Yeah. I <laughs> I'm hoping it is with really my greatest hope, and I hope it will come my greatest joy, is to connect with people 
and to bring more of what I've done over the last 20 years in a different format than where you've seen me, which is traditionally news, um, continuing to connect with people, more people telling more stories uh, in a different way and far reaching. And that's what I'm hoping. Do you, do you see this as um, a TV show? Because I see you as like an Oprah or do you <laughs> see this as a podcast or all the above? I see everything for myself. I'm right now in that, um, I call it a fact-finding mode. I'm gathering all the information and, and all the different, and I'm exploring all the different opportunities and I'm going to, fig- I'm going to, I'm trying to bring it all together right now and figure out which will be the best fit for me. And hopefully I'm coming up with that in the next, hopefully the next few weeks, because I'm feeling some pressure from some of, some people wanting answers. Yeah. I, I have very, very uh, good feelings about uh, that. Really, I think the sky's the limit for you. You're, you're Thank an you. unbelievable person. Thank you. And, and I think you you help other people. Your 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 ultimate bliss, I think, is doing exactly what you're doing. And I think you're going to keep on doing it in even more exciting ways. And we really can't wait to hear what that's going to be, what, what it's going to be. And we, we want our audience to follow you on social media to keep posted about all the exciting things happening in your career. And we're going Thank to, you. so Instagram, we can follow you at? At Dana Levinson. That's at D-A-N-A-L-E-V-E-N-S-O-N. And on Twitter? Uh, at Dana Levinson TV. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that we're going to have you featured in our magazine, findingyourbliss.com. Oh, that would yeah. be fantastic. Thanks again to the beautiful and talented Dana Levinson. We loved having you truly Thank you so much here today. And please follow her again on Instagram at Dana Levinson or on Twitter at Dana Levinson TV. Don't go away because coming right up, we have international star and world acclaimed cellist, Ofra Harnoy, who was the youngest person at age 30 to ever become a member of the Order of Canada, and her new husband, award-winning trumpet player Mike Harriet, after this short break. We're also asking our listeners to write to us or emails email us at judy at findingyourbliss.com or to message us either on Instagram or Facebook at The Bliss Minute with any questions you may have for next week's guest, who is vocal coach to the stars, Elaine Overholt. Everyone who writes in with a question about singing or a story about singing or anything to do with singing, he will win a pair of tickets to the yoga and wellness show. And a lucky listener could also win Elaine's famous big voice warm-up CD. And finally, (laughs) we're thanking Dane again so much for being here. And we are so excited to come back with Ofra Harnoy and Mike Harriet. Thanks for listening. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.